Okay, so we're starting now a new book of the Torah, the book of Vayikra. We're in chapter 1, verse 1 of Vayikra. He called to Moses, and God spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, we see in this verse a redundancy. It says God called to Moses and God spoke to him. Well, if, what, what do I need to already call to? He spoke. So Rashi says that this is actually teaching us a general principle that before every time God speaks to Moses, there's a calling in which he repeats his name, Moses, Moses. He's calling out to him. Now, why does God do this? It's a language of affection. It's a language that indicates affection as the angels call out. But if God reveals himself to the prophet of the nations, like to Bilaam, then he didn't give him this endearing calling first. And we see here that actually we have in this verse three things, meaning it says he called him and he spoke to him. We have the term Vayidaber, speaking. Then we have at the end of the verse the word Lamar, saying. And then... In our next verse, it begins by saying daber, which is command of speech. So therefore, we have incorporated all three terms God would use in terms of speaking with Moses. A daber, speaking, lamor, saying, and daber, speak, the command version. So this is to imply to us that before everything God did, if it was a dibor or lamor or tzav, a speech, a saying, a command, it was always preceded by the calling Moses, Moses, to express this affection. Next, Rashi, and he called to Moses. So Rashi says that the voice of God would reach Moses' ears, but the Jewish people wouldn't hear it. Then, Rashi continues to say that we might think that every time we see in the Torah there's a break, which means there's a space, like a blank space, open in how the Torah is written, we might think that every blank space implies a new prophecy, which means a new calling, but that's not so. Okay, so then why do we have these blank spots in between some verses? So it was actually, so to speak, to give a break for Moses to have time to contemplate and digest what God is telling him between one section and the other of Torah. And Rashi learns from here and says, if this is so for someone like Moses, learning for someone like God, that he needed these breaks, to absorb it, even though we would think Moses is quite capable, being the human embodiment of the divine wisdom, and he's being taught by the ultimate master teacher, God, and still he needed these breaks. How much more so if a person learns from a person, do they need breaks to pause and think and digest the information? Now the verse says, and God spoke to him. The thing we're just saying, God spoke from the tent of meeting. Why does it say to him? So Rashi says that to him is to exclude Aaron. From here we learn a general concept. Thirteen statements in the Torah are said to Moses and Aaron. And there's another thirteen, like one of them being our situation here, where it's said with an exclusion, exclusively to. And why do we have these exclusions? To teach us that even those other thirteen times where it says to Moses and Aaron, God spoke to Moses and Aaron. That's not really what happened. Really, all of them were exclusionary. And in all of them, God is speaking to Moses alone. And only Moses' ears are hearing God's words. Well, if so, then why does the verse say 13 times God spoke to Moses and Aaron? This is to teach that all those things that God said to Moses, 
he was supposed to then give over in a, in a one-on-one way to Aaron. But in all of these times, the one hearing the voice of God is Moses. Now it says God spoke to him from the tent of meeting, which is to teach us that it's the voice of God got, so to speak, cut off and did not outside the tent, which doesn't mean, of course, that God's voice was low and muffled to make sure that it wouldn't be heard outside the tent because it says the voice Moses is hearing and the voice is a voice that we describe in Psalms as the voice of God that's so powerful, so majestic, it breaks the cedars. So why does it say it could only be heard in the tent of meeting? Because God would cut off the voice that once it reached the walls of the tent, it could not be heard outside the tent. It was only for Moses' ears. Now, when it says the tent of meeting, the verse says, and God spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. So this is teaching us, we could think, that the voice came from the entire tent of meeting, like around sound. But that's not what it was, because there's another verse that says it came from the kaporis. The kaporis is the lid on top of the ark. So then I could think, okay, the voice came from the entirety of this lid. And then it says from between the cherubim. So specifically from that one place between the cherubim, the cherubim, on the ark lid came forth the voice of God that then filled the whole tent of meeting. And Moses heard this powerful voice that got completely cut off by the walls of the tent of meeting, and no one exclusive of Moses heard this voice. And then the last word here is saying. He called to Moses and God spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying. Now whenever we have the term saying, what does that mean? And God spoke saying, which we have very often in Torah. Saying means just give it over to someone else. So Rashi gives you two explanations. The first explanation is God is saying to Moses, give over this to the Jewish people. Say to them very special words that here Moses is having this exclusive relationship with God He's going to the tent of meeting. He's hearing God's voice. No one gets to hear God's voice but him. But tell the Jewish people, only on your account is God communicating with me. As, unfortunately, we saw that for 38 years, when the Jews were in the desert, they were sort of excommunicated, which means after the sin of the spies, until all the people that had transgressed the sin of the spies passed away, which took 38 years, God didn't have this type of intimate communication with Moses. Well, did Moses' stature change? Did he fall? Did he do something wrong with the sin of the spies? No. But even though this is an exclusive for Moses' benefit, it's coming in the merit of the Jewish people. When the Jews aren't on that level, Moses doesn't enjoy this relationship. So that's the lame word. Give over to the Jewish people that the communication I have with God is in your merit. Or a different understanding Lamor giving over here, implying not that Moses should say something to, to the Jewish people, but that he should Lamor, he should say something to God. He should report back to God. What should he report back to God? You go and tell the Jews my words and report to me the way, whether, whether they accept them or not. As we see, it says, and Moses reported the words of the people. Because God wants to hear from the people that they're accepting what God is telling them here. Well, this is introducing what he's going to say. So now we begin, and this book of Ayikor is primarily filled with laws of the, the, the sacrifices, the offerings to God in the temple and the tabernacle. <clears throat> say to the children of Israel and say to them, when a person from among you will bring an offering to God, 
from the animals, from the cattle, and from the flocks, you shall bring your offerings. So, Rashi begins by saying, this says, when the person will bring, meaning the first thing we're discussing in these laws are voluntary offerings. In other words, the verse said, when a person from among you will bring. So from you implies the initiative of the offering is coming from you. It's not an obligation imposed by the Torah. Others derive the same thing from a different word, from the word ki, when a person from among you will bring an offering. And the when, which is not usually used for obligations, implies these are optional. So the verse is talking here about a person that uses the term adam, which is not a common term for man. Usually the common term for man is ish. So why did it use the term adam? Also, the term adam connotes a Jew as opposed to a non-Jew. But in the previous Rashi, Rashi said that this section is talking about voluntary offerings, and a non-Jew could bring a voluntary offering. So why are we using the term adam, which is exclusive to Jews, when we're talking about offerings that a non-Jew could bring? So that's why Rashi explains here that adam is not referring to man in general. I mean, it is, but additionally... There's another level of understanding here that actually is a proper noun referring to the first man, Adam, Adam. Because, as Rashi explained, just as Adam, the first man, didn't bring an offering for anything which was stolen because everything was his, he owned the world, so too, obviously, do not bring me as an offering anything which is stolen. So what are you supposed to bring from the animal, the hema? So a person could say, does this include wild animals? Because sometimes the term for animal that the verse uses here, behema, could also mean wild animals. But to teach us that this isn't so, the Torah continues and says, from your cattle and flocks. Now obviously cattle and flocks never include wild animals. So the fact that we say behema, animals, and then your cattle and flocks, understands that we want the term animal here in the more narrow sense, not to also mean wild animals, but only domesticated animals. From the animals, the verse says, which means not all animals, because an animal that was an active or passive partner in an act of bestiality is not allowed to be offered. It's not holy. It was used for something evil. From the cattle. Why does it say from the cattle? Again, from implies an exclusion, a limitation, not all of the cattle. So this from the cattle excludes any animal that has been worshipped as an idol. Because anything, again, that you did evil with, you can't then offer to me. And it also says from the flock, which is also exclusionary, limiting the flock, not all the flock. Because again, any animal which had been set aside as a sacrifice for pagan worship, so here we're shifting it slightly, it's not that the animal itself was worshipped, but it was officially supposed to be a sacrifice for pagan worship, but then, in the end, somebody wants to offer it to God. God says, no thanks. Once you're already connected to idolatry, don't give it to me. Also, this from is excluding another type of animal, an animal that has gored and killed a person. And also, an animal, another reason, there are many exclusionary things going on here, Another exclusionary thing in from the cattle is an animal which is a trefa. Trefa means an animal that has a physical defect which could lead to death. 
meaning even though they didn't die from that defect, but if we know that this defect would lead to their death, then we view it as not kosher, not fit for an offering. The most common ones, of course, we have today is certain lesions on the lungs that we say, oh, not just the animal got slaughtered, but if the animal had continued to live, from these lesions on the lung, we say there are potential lung diseases from which the animal could have died. So such an animal is called trefa, and we do not eat such an animal. So the verse says, you shall bring your offering. Why is it you shall bring in the plural? You would think it's he shall bring, just one person. But this teaches us that two people in partnership can donate an animal. In other words, animals are quite expensive. And here we're talking about a voluntary offering. So two people can partner together and share the merit of this one animal that they're offering because an animal costs a lot of money. And your offering is teaching us that the offering, the Ola offering, which is an animal that's completely burnt up to God, can come as a voluntary contribution of the entire community. In other words, that phrase at the end, you shall bring your offering, sounds redundant. It should have just said, you shall offer. We don't have to say you shall offer your offering. We understand it's your offering. The reason why the Torah wrote this seemingly redundant word, your offering, and especially with the plural suffix, your offering, is to teach us there can be voluntary communal offerings. Sometimes happened that there were extra funds in the community test of offering, so to speak, and these extra funds were given for these voluntary offerings. Like, as it is called, the dessert of the altar. These were extra offerings. How did we have these extra funds? Because sometimes certain sin offerings or guilt offerings could not be offered on the altar because they developed a blemish. So they were sold. And the funds from this money were then used for the voluntary offerings of the community. So this was when there was this extra funds in the chest because of these offerings that we couldn't use and had to be sold. These extra funds were given as voluntary offerings to bring a special closeness to God for the entire community.